0: Page to practice. Applying educational reading in the classroom. Join in the conversation using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. From Page to Practice is a podcast focusing on the application of education research in the classroom. Each episode features a conversation with a different guest, teachers, authors and others interested in education, talking about what the phrase from page to practice means to them and the importance of applying evidence to classroom practice. Hi and welcome to Series 5, Episode 20 of From Page to Practice. I'm really pleased to have got up to 20 episodes. I've got another few booked in, so I think we'll get to about 23 at the current count. It would be great to get up to the end of term, so I need a couple more. Today, I'm speaking to Lucy, who is sharing her knowledge of supporting SEND students in the classroom. Hi, and welcome to From Page to Practice. So today, I'm here with Lucy, and as per usual, I'm taking the lazy way out, and I'm going to ask Lucy, could you introduce yourself, please? Of course. Well, thank you so much
1: for having me um, on your wonderful podcast, Rebecca. It's a pleasure to be here. And um, so, yes, my name is Lucy Dresneen. I am currently the curriculum lead for a school, which is an academy in the West Midlands. And I'm also head of German language from Key Stage 3 to Key Stage 5. I've been in my current roles for as a combination for just under a year, but I uh, became head of German after my um Newly qualified teacher year in 2020, and had been teaching for a year before then. Uh, teaching was not a vocation for me. I entered the profession in 2018, having completed my PG DipEd in uh, at the University of Birmingham. And before then, I actually worked in children's theatre, so leading a children's after-school theatre group doing various bits of work with children in primary schools as a teaching assistant and also with experience in arts marketing and research for various festivals in Bristol which is where I went to university.
0: Great I'm going to take a quick detour from the question I normally ask next just to ask a question that I'm sure everybody possibly asks you why languages rather than drama then? Languages has been the most consistent
1: presence in my life. Uh, the arts, too. Uh, my father is a pianist and composer, and my mom, a journalist, but both of them, their lives were enriched by languages. They would not have met and their past not coincided had it not been for languages. And therefore, you know, it led to my bilingual upbringing in English and Russian. And I've been very fortunate to live and lots of different places. So by the time I was 18, lived in three different countries and had had a very enriching, enlightening, like highly inspiring uh, background of people in my life who used language to communicate and connect and learn about each other's, you know, cultural heritage and, you know, about them as people. So I feel like without Languages, I wouldn't have my understanding of the world. I wouldn't have this kind of curiosity for people in general. It's basically the way I've connected my whole life. And I think I've very much used that wider linguistic sphere to explore everything I love about theatre, film, and the arts. So I've sort of been able to marry the two really happily in my practice now, which wasn't really a conscious decision, but the languages have led me to uh, this fantastic point where I'm able to inspire children about the world around them, but maybe also use the arts to do so.
0: Oh, what a great endorsement of language learning. I'm glad I paused to ask you that. I couldn't (laughs) I couldn't let that slip by without having the chance. So now the question I'm meant to be asking you, which Mm -hmm. is what does the phrase from page to practice mean to you? So I think the what the phrase from page to
1: practice means going beyond the immediate pillars of research where which are oftentimes cited and too generally applied. Now that's not to say that we don't have the core principles of teaching that have informed pedagogy and practice for generations of teachers that have passed, and certainly apply to our practice at present. But you know, we all can cite that process of plan, teach, assess. That cycle can, you know, is basically the the, the ground, the groundswell, the foundation of what we do in the day to day with our students and how we communicate as a profession. But it can feel very repetitive and I do think that if you don't stop to consider what you find inspirational or don't stop to consider what you really want to embellish your practice with, uh, I think you miss out on a whole other sphere or frame of empowering research which speaks to you and to your belief system. We all as teachers do have that belief system ingrained in us because of that prior experience before we formally became, became teachers. And I think we therefore have every right to say this is what we believe should be a kind of an active ingredient in our classrooms because not only does this make learning happen according to our, the general research, but actually because I've taken that time to find the other sphere of research that I find empowering, you actually increase your autonomy as a teacher. And you find, I, I feel like it in, It just furthers your investment in the day-to-day because it is a grind. It's a really difficult profession. We can get lost in that system. So we need to be able to retain our voice through constantly being inspired by what lies further ahead and how do we actually bring that into the classroom in manifold ways in the day-to-day.
0: Thanks, that's a really great reflection. That's why I really enjoy asking this question because everybody says something slightly different and has their own, clearly has their own passion linked to it as well. So that's why I, mm. I continue to ask that question. You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag page practice Podcast. So into the main body of what we're talking about today then so could you give us an idea of what it is you've come to talk about why you're hoping it might be something other people will want to, to listen to?
1: Of course uh, I've, I'm and actually listening to past episodes of the podcast I, I was thinking to myself how would be best to open this section of our conversation but I actually, I found some fairly natural inspiration from the editor of the Impact magazine, which is released through Chartered College of Teaching. And the latest edition of that, which was just came out a couple of weeks ago, it ended with a really wonderful quote um, from Becky saying that the evidence to help move our practice forward, um, the reward on offer is a consistent, well-led and empowered teaching profession providing better outcomes for all children and young people, particularly those who need our support the most. And I find this idea of vulnerable children or children who need adult guidance really interesting. So what I've come to talk about is languages and SEN, so meeting the learner needs within a subject that is too often scrutinized as being too difficult for those with SEN to access and indeed maybe those without those specific needs but hopefully what i'll talk about is the strategy or a series of strategies that you can adopt to not only make those meet those needs of those with SEN but actually how that accommodates for learning needs for all and it, that we're not just talking about needs which you know impede understanding or uh, impede motivation but actually just creates that culture of love of learning in your classroom and you know Languages being such a powerful tool and subject to do that, there should be a way of us kind of busting all the myths that surround languages that make all those children, especially those who are most vulnerable and disadvantaged, advantaged, feel like an active part of the classroom and the furthering of learning. So hopefully what I cite shouldn't just be applicable to the language's context, but to subject contexts outside of that discipline.
0: Well, that's great because that's one thing I was just about to say. So for anybody who's listening that's that's not a language teacher, one, I guess, do we think that there's things that we're going to discuss today that they can apply in their own classroom? And actually, two, I'm thinking for school leadership uh, to, to who are from different subject backgrounds to be thinking about how they can support their MFL departments and people who are thinking mm. of you know, leadership in the future. This is something that they might need to consider. So I think there's quite a lot here for for anybody listening not just the language teachers would you agree oh for sure and this has also stemmed
1: from conversations that happened really organically in my teacher training year with students in other subject disciplines because we realized that our job really concerned that you know that issue of social mobility and that's not just about moving children further along so that they can't can climb up that social ladder but actually how is it that they can become resilient as people and how how do they manage really complex social situations I mean to take my context I work in a school which it's 1800 students there's 300 students in each every year group wow so most you know We're not even talking about getting the children settled into their individual classes in the classroom. We're talking about them navigating break times and lunch times with so many different personalities around them. We can't account for those day-to-day activities that might affect their moods or emotions or their confidence. So, how is it that we reinforce that confidence by just, you know, our teacher presence and the routines we have and also our consideration of the learner needs? as statemented by SEN, but also just their needs as people, You know, their needs as young minds which are in development but may not have had the experience of managing that really complex soci- like sociolinguistic learner situation and also trying to like, actually communicate with one another and be a, a source of confidence for each other. Um, I've always been really fascinated by that. Maybe that stems from my... Theatre background, but I I think that's just a situation we deal with as teachers, regardless of our subject discipline.
0: So going language specific for, for a moment, I guess, for those yeah. people listening, you know, language teachers listening will know what often happens when it comes to um, students with SEND in the language mm. classroom or whether they even make it into the language classroom, for example. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Could you just contextualize that for the people who, are, who aren't who are language teachers? You know, what, what is the situation we're in and, and why, therefore, is this an important thing to talk about?
1: So... I suppose I don't like really starting with the whole GCSE as a framework for our curriculum, but I think it is pertinent in this mm-hmm. context to um, help inform the debate. So the GCSE as it stands at the moment is really overloaded with um, language that is both too context specific and too widely underused. There is a The curriculum is oversaturated with several topic disciplines that are well above the, I think, cultural literacy and the experience of our students. And we're not just talking SEM, we're saying the average t- student in our classroom, in a state school, perhaps. Uh, mm-hmm. the, there is a difficulty in fitting all of the content in. So you get a lot of breadth, but not a lot of depth. So that's what we're up against. And then also the severity of grading in our GCSE is very demotivating for just the average student and is not a particularly accessible exam for those with SEM. It can be everything from the way in which fonts are laid out on the page to the speed at which the listenings take place, the inclusion of vocabulary that's deliberately put in there by exam boards to confuse students to not enable them to infer correctly the meaning of an unknown word those are obstacles that every student would come up against and we even as teachers might sit down and do a past paper and not get full marks because of the way in which the mark scheme is so seemingly so geared towards failing these students as opposed to making them feel actually successful so if you can imagine that we're all battling those obstacles those with SEN of on, you know, anywhere on a spectrum, anyone that kind of continuum would find it even more challenging. So, we don't necessarily get a high proportion of SEN students taking our subject for GCSE. Then, veering further back, I think he's stage three, they may be in classes of 30, where you might have 25 to 26 students who are, on average, fairly confident, quite socially uh, apt at reading situations want to participate, but those with SCN might get overlooked because they are segmented and they find those situations un- unbelievably pressured, they're easily distracted, they can't keep up with the rate of learning, they find it difficult to break down meaning of new words, or even the literacy and numeracy rates in their first language might, enable, might not enable them to independently access the strategies that we're teaching our students. So I think the context we're working is within at the moment is extremely difficult because there's already, I think, a prejudice or a certain bias against those students thinking that they just won't be able to keep up just because of the demands of our curriculum and that end point of the exam and so on.
0: Thank you. I think that for people who don't necessarily know anything about languages learning, language teaching and languages assessment as well, that would give it a little bit of context to some challenges that might not necessarily have been considered in the past. I think the, the picture at Key Stage 3 is probably recognisable across the board for a lot of subjects. But at Key Stage 4, I think there's some unique challenges there um, that, that might not have been recognised before. And I think actually so, to
1: sorry to just interject really quickly. one another main factor is also time, where you know language if we think about language learning and how we acquire it over time, you know we need they need that constant exposure and repetition if you know I know in some schools they only have four hours a fortnight, possibly even three hours a fortnight. We're very lucky in our context that we get five hours a fortnight at key stage three and the same for GCSE but that's still relative to all the other learning that happens and takes place. For SEN students, they, they are, they, their rate of learning means that even those in the, within those five hours, their retention of learning is not going to be statistically as high as for those who are not necessarily statemented or don't come up against those obstacles. So those are that is another crucial factor I think we often forget to take consideration of, but certainly is pertinent.
0: Absolutely, I was having exactly this conversation with somebody at an event at the weekend where we were comparing two teachers from two different schools who were saying, "Oh well, I get this many hours a fortnight." Wow, do you? I get this many, and it was it was just Mm -hmm. stark. And then you talk about you know where the timetabling fits, and have you got them period five on a Monday and period one on a Friday and nothing in between, or or you know period five on the Wednesday and period one on the Thursday and then nothing between and, and all of those factors come into play hugely, don't they? So um yeah, yeah lots of lots of different things to consider. Um so is there something particular you'd like to, to look at first? Is there a particular area you've looked into recently or something you've read? Sure. So I was thinking about how to almost
1: condense what I would I guess identify as being key elements of my practice, and weirdly I came up with a lot of words that um, all began with C, but they <laughs> do actually sort of encompass, <laughs> encompass them. So I, I might as well just tell you them, and I guess you could say uh, you could you could indicate which one you find most interesting because I'd happily really uh, like start with all of them. But sure. we, but yeah, I guess reflecting on the four years I've been in the teaching profession and what I've always valued about the arts and that that natural communicative element of languages teaching. Um, I sort of narrowed it down to the contextual principle, comprehensible, making it cultural or contemporary, making it collaborative, making learning cooperative, constructive, and above all, compassionate. So I don't know which one of those sings most to you, but like I said, be very happy to kind of zone in on any of them because they've all seemed quite intrinsic to the way in which I operate in the day to day in the classroom. And most importantly, stay motivated and really tapped into the job and the sort of overarching aims and mission. Of what we try and accomplish as teachers.
0: Great. Well, I've written, I was trying to write them down as you went just to remind myself, but I think let's start at the beginning and go through. Cause I think what will happen is I'll pick one and somebody listening will be thinking, Oh, I wanted to hear about the other one. So let's start <laughs> with contextual and we'll go from there. <laughs> sure. So we
1: this is really interesting because I remember being in a languages classroom and my teacher being, you know, absolutely hellbent on us always speaking target language so really listening repeating and using german as much as possible and although we did do the sort of separate explicit instruction of here's the grammar rule what what does it mean what do we use it for let's apply it there was certainly an element of that kind of academic caliber but actually overall i've realized how important context is to make language learning happen and that is actually now going to be pretty much the basis of the new GCSE is actually using the vocabulary that we learn in multitude of ways in order to make it more memorable for students. And there are seven several approaches out there that exist now that really advocate for this. I was really fortunate to um, have Dr. Adam Cook as my teacher trainer at University of Birmingham, and he completed his thesis on uh, sort of pedagogical content knowledge and the the acquisition of language over time, mm-hmm. but really looking at all the different movements that helped that that have existed for over you know over a hundred years to help make language happen. And the thing that he demonstrated to us most is how memorable language was for all learners, regardless of our uh, capacity to remember words or the look of words or the sound of words, the more that you repeated the language, the more effective it was. So for to me, Learning language contextually and making that an active ingredient in the classroom means showing the students immediately how you can use that language purposefully. And that could be done in a you know, huge number of ways. I think maybe the route that I've gone down is the more creative one. So, certainly, if there's a, I don't know, if we're doing year seven physical descriptions, I'll immediately create some sort of bizarre monster character or film a little video using that language and adding gestures and additional sort of bits of scaffolding to help the students realize what it is I'm saying and then we chorally repeat that language in context we look at visual aids and dual coding to support all of that and it then enables you to really see who's actively responding to what you're doing uh you're really engaging in that social relationship with your pupils. And if you know who in your class is SEN, you can see that they're not very confidently repeating a word or they're still looking a little bit bewildered. You can use all of the like facets of gesture and language and body language and voice to really show, like, no, this is what it means in context. Okay, let's look at the feel of the word. Let's examine it. Let's repeat it again. And then hopefully that just gives them an idea of the like the real function and purpose of that word. And perhaps even make, they start to make subtly those connections with whether that word sounds or looks similar to what they already know in their home language. Can they infer what the new word means based on where it is in the sentence? And we were really lucky to experiment with so many different approaches and ways in which to show how important context was in my training year. So from the outset, really. I feel like it's just been intractable from the way in which I practice and they can already see from the moment that I use the language that I am deliberately wanting them to learn those words or those phrases to help them succeed.
0: I like it. That was great, and I'm not going to ask you too many questions about each C because I want to carry on yeah. through them. But um, yeah. I managed to write down compassionate twice, so now I don't know what the second one actually was. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it's um it's comprehensible, and this oh, um, that was it. <laughs> yep. Yeah, so I think
1: actually the comprehensible and the contextual marries up well with the sort of the cultural element that I think is very important to bring in. Mm-hmm. Um, there's been a resurgence um, from, especially from Dr. Liam Printer who. Uh, who does the Motivated Classroom podcast in the interest in Stephen Krashen, who took mm-hmm. his whole, there is, you know, input analysis, that input plus one. To making language comprehensible for students is, I think, a teacher's most effective tool in really like getting them to look at a text and thinking, is this in line with what my students are able to do? Do I need to adapt the language a little bit in order to make it more understandable? But obviously not you know 100% comprehensible it should be there should be an element of newness in there or am i looking at a text thinking that is far too challenging because there's too many different processes that doesn't allow a student you know a student of of any ability to really access the text and feel like they've actually understood it and can replicate it in some way so we did a lot of practice on this in my training year again and i think that's just again become quite an active Ingredient in my class classroom because I'm very keen that students shouldn't just be limited to saying singular sentences. They should be able to actually look at a text which is authentic, be it an advert or excerpt of a newspaper article, or an excerpt from a book or transcript from a YouTube video, and actually pinpoint words that they individually can understand, and then start looking at everything else and sounding them out and experimenting and going, actually, there's even more to this that I understand. You then give them those contextual clues or we look at imagery and say, you know, culturally, where are we? What do you think is going on? You start discussing probably in English, you know, what what is the what is the basis of what we're looking at? What are some keywords that tell us that this is actually useful and therefore what else can we predict is happening or what does, you know, what do these other words mean based on your immediate understanding of the text? And again teaching your students of all you know particular needs across the continuum you know how how do we break down a word how do we sound it out does it sound familiar where is it in the sentence can we figure out what it might mean what kind of word it might be as soon as you you know in, introduce them to that that really compelling input that's culturally relevant or close to what they might have experienced in their own lives you suddenly the context and the comprehension really starts to sing for them, and I think you can glean a lot from their answers and the way in which they're engaging with your questions uh, to be able to move the learning further along and actually motivate all learners to participate in that process.
0: Yeah, and what's striking me as you're talking, you've just said all learners at the end there is actually a lot of this is stuff that's good for all learners. What you know, what we do to support our whole class can support the SEN, and what can what we're doing to ensure that everyone's included. that we're doing maybe for for particular needs in our classroom can still support everyone it's it's solid you know it's solid good teaching the things you're talking about aren't isn't it
1: yeah yes and it kind of harks back to what I said before this moves on from just the general pedagogical principles that we as teachers appreciate are part of the teacher standards or indeed the you know that plan teacher assess cycle that we can all cite but here then If you think about, I don't know, the questioning phase of a lesson, your I think it it enables teachers to really look at their class and go, well, because we've all participated in the process, I'm no longer going to just reserve almost subconsciously higher level questioning or higher order questioning for those who I think are the most, I don't like saying most able, most confident. Mm -hmm. I'm actually looking, I've looked and engaged with someone who is statemented as being dyslexic or has trouble, has a speech or language communication need. And go, well, really look at it. You know, what is it we said? How did we say that that word sounded? What was that pronunciation again? Okay, so what do you think that particular word means? Look at look at everything around and see what they pick up on. I'm continually surprised with every class I get year on year, just what my students are capable of. And also what those who I thought were most confident might actually find surprisingly difficult. So it becomes this exchange of information That like live interaction, which if I don't if I didn't hear it from them, I don't know what they have or haven't understood. So it's not just a powerful AFL strategy. It's you actually understanding that every single learner is really different in the way in which they absorb language and knowledge in general. And it's not limited to or the techniques that are recommended to us to help certain students further along in their learning. You're actually, you're not discriminating against them. It sort of, it it removes that element of bias that I think can be very easily present in our teaching. You're really engaging with the social environment of learning and asking all pupils to participate without fear of getting it wrong, hopefully.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So you touched upon, I think, a little bit of the cultural contemporary as you were going there. But is there anything else mm. you wanted to add on that before moving on to what I think was collaborative next? Yes. Yeah, so, uh, again, we talked about the, um,
1: the. I think I briefly mentioned Liam Printer's uh, podcast, um, and he's really big on autonomy and motivation, but also mm-hmm. the self-determination theory. And I think the, the social psychological element of learning is so powerful. And I think what really, what I can see makes all learners very much tick is if I suddenly put an image on the board of a celebrity that they recognize who might not even be associated with that target language culture, but is someone who they're like, that's a kind of humorous, unexpected element. So to mm-hmm. give an example, in my year 11 German class, we're doing travel and tourism at the moment. So I got them all to create their own travel character for the unit. And my character is Dwayne Johnson, The Rock, who just for, to make sure I make it clear to every listeners, I don't physically look like The Rock <laughs> at all. And so i extremely different to me, in, both in personality and in looks and in cultural heritage. But through him, I then get to, again, put on a bit of a, a drama hat and act out what it would be like to be him. You know, where would I be from would be my interests And therefore, we've gotten to relate our travel characters to every single bit of the learning, which is stimulating. Like that gives the students permission to sort of exit outside of themselves, whatever grievances they might have experienced in the day to day of school life. Whatever they're going through, I'm literally saying to them, if I can be the rock in this lesson, you can be whoever you want to be. So that is a very small but pertinent example of how a contemporary reference to something outside of the explicit curriculum that we teach in languages can be used to therefore empower students to feel like, actually, this is this is going to help me along because my teacher is actively asking me to do it and they're doing it themselves.
0: That was a great example of how creative uh languages can be to learn or how to to teach actually a really good example and really showing the the multitude of hats that language teachers can end up wearing I think definitely and I I suppose if I want to make a more
1: explicit link to anyone who's a non-language specialist who's listening um I'd very much encourage them to look at you know an exam question in science or maths and think well what's a contemporary or contextual or cultural reference point in the here and now or from the From not too long ago, that I can bring in to just redesign that question and make it sing differently on the page or in my lesson. I have. I'm. I'm currently coaching um, a a computer science specialist who is an ECT too, and we were talking about how you know his previous life. He was a data analyst for Nike, and he's obsessed with football. Hmm. And I said to him, like, you've got you know, I know that you've engaged students in previous schools that you've taught in with that like a little nugget of information about yourself. Those students who might want to be CEOs of some big company, but at the moment don't have that kind of emotional relationship with you. How about just bringing in like a real life example of the kind of data analyst analyst work that you used to do and see what they just make of it. See what See if they think it's too hard, too easy. Is it something that they couldn't believe that you used to do? Is there any element of the learning that they've experienced with you actually present in that example? And if they are able to realise that, that's a discussion that could just, you know, it will stimulate the lesson in a way that you probably would not have um, been able to foresee necessarily. It's the unpredictability of learning driven by our desire as teachers to socially connect with our students.
0: Oh, absolutely. And they'll be bringing that up for years to come as well, because you tell them something that you think is relatively inconsequential and they remember it and whenever it seems vaguely relevant it comes back up and you think oh you've remembered that I said that have you so it's Mm. it's interesting that kind of thing to see what they they remember and what links they make with it definitely
1: yeah Um, but I feel very passionately about the students knowing enough about us that we seem human uh that Mm -hmm. we're not necessarily (laughs) living in the school building uh constantly but I'm also very passionate about Understanding their emotional vulnerability. And again, I keep stressing this isn't limited to uh, students who have a SEMH need. This is the realities of modern daily life for teenagers and understanding Mm. that they might be bringing a whole set of their own private mental needs into the classroom with you. So to be able to disseminate that and make them feel like they are empowered as opposed to. well, undermined for want of a better phrase. Mm-hmm. Then I think, or or perhaps that their their struggles are irrelevant to your learning environment. You know, languages is, is an inherently social subject. We actually do see that probably a lot more sensitively than other subjects might do because of just the way their subject discipline is run.
0: So we're relying now on my dodgy handwriting, but I think the next one was collaborative, and I don't know whether it was linked to the following constructive or if they were separate. Um, I think that we can certainly
1: marry the two. I'll, I'll try and do it on the on the spot, but I think um, I think the Education Endowment Foundation has done a really uh, sensational job on a focus on oracy recently, and I think we've definitely tried to move away a lot from the over-reliance on writing in our subject because when we look at like acquisition theory, the way in which new words were learned when we first started learning our first language when we were all babies was through lots of talking, lots of repetition, lots of hearing the word in different, as I say, contexts and Therefore, it was that exchange of information. Parents deliver, and eventually we were able to repeat, and then we could speak it and try and use it again. And then, you know, years later, we'll first see the look of the word and then be able to write it. I think languages is quite discriminatory towards SEN students in this way that there is such a reliance on being able to write and use the words perfectly and accurately mm-hmm. within a sentence. And it just isn't the case. We have to make these errors in order to make progress not just because it makes the learning more fun but actually because language learning is really inherently quite messy <laughs> uh, so I think uh, Education and Endowment Foundation have done a really fantastic job on using the power of oracy to, um, to stimulate classroom discussion to make students feel like they are really part of that social relationship that they can develop with one another and that social environment and again in the impact magazine there was a really good um succinct summary of the research by Angela Schofield uh the article was entitled let's talk about disadvantage the fundamental importance of oracy and closing the gap and I think what the point that maybe struck me the most was um her saying, by encouraging students to find the voice and make the voice heard, we give them a greater sense that they can have an impact on their surroundings. And I find that word impact so wonderful. And it is impactful. Like you, if you hear the students talking away in a target language, you suddenly mm-hmm. feel like there's just a whole, it's it's such an animated environment. It's one that we feel really reluctant to part from, I think.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: um, I think the collaborative element comes in whereby You will have students repeating key structures that you have presented in context, and you now want them to use in their own work, both spoken and written work. But you'll inevitably have the student asking, "Oh, what's the word for this? And what's the word for that?" You'll know from knowing your students whether the cognitive demand of the word they're asking for is too high or too, or you know, perhaps not challenging enough for them. So if you get special educational needs students asking for those words, Sometimes I'll just give it to them. I'll sometimes say, "Nope, I want you to focus on reusing that vocabulary that I think I know. Mm-hmm. I know you need to be able to use." But I'm also not saying how ridiculous a question is that. I'll say, if you can u- show me that you can use that word, I will of course give you the word for whatever it is you <laughs> you want to say next. <laughs> yeah. Or they might indeed be really curious about other students' work. So one of the exercises I get everyone to do once, maybe about a lesson or two into the sequence of learning is. Saying, okay, here's the key question. I want you to include these elements. So they'll write three or four sentences. Some might be riddled with errors, some not. It doesn't, I'm not really hell bent on accuracy. I'm just intent on them producing. And mm-hmm. then we'll do a time thing where they'll have to read aloud what they've said on the piece of paper and pass it on to the next person. So everything moves in a sort of snake-like form around the classroom. And then they'll see how many texts they can read and how many different ways you know the 29 other people in that room have used similar structures but different words and then at the end of that I'll say okay choose two or three words that you think you've gleaned from that and see if you can now use it in your own work so they've been asked to trust each other by reading one another's work but it's done in a sort of speedily non-judgmental environment and by the end you'll hope you hope that they've actually reinforced the key ideas from that lesson or sequence of lessons or they'll have actually picked up new language just by way of interacting with one another. So I, I always I love the differentiation that comes within that. And I suppose what's constructive is also understanding how, at what point are all the, you know, where are all these learners when they start? And actually what is the rate of progress for each of these students? And Ellis was probably the other very influential academic uh, I had when I did my teacher training. And he really zoned in on this idea of learner correction, Sorry, learner errors and error correction, which I guess, which in a nutshell was arguing that errors will happen at one specific moment in time and are only part of the picture. The errors that are mm-hmm. made in one lesson will not necessarily come up again in two two lessons' time, or they may well do, but after like a year's worth of practice, because you've had you've got other knowledge now interfering with that existing knowledge, and suddenly the errors just reoccur. But the point is that we don't pick up on every single error that the students make, because some of them might mm-hmm. be unenforced because of that introduction of new knowledge. We certainly, you know, I've always prioritised the verbs in languages because they communicate whether you're doing something now, in the past, what you thought, what you would like to think. And then everything else that comes with, you know, in German, the adjectival endings, the whether a noun is masculine, feminine, or of or Uh, The word order of some words, whether things are written as singular or plural, that is not what I zone in on, least Mm of all with SEN students, because chances are it's going to take them many more years of practice before they even begin to appreciate the nuance of that, whereas there might be someone they're sat next to who gets it straight away. And that's, that's okay, but that doesn't make the communicative value of what they're saying any less valuable or any less pertinent.
0: Mm. I think you've led quite nicely onto that that final word in your list compassionate there because I think there's mm. there's something in error correction or lack of at, at times of about with compassion isn't there? So uh, you've made my job really easy today because I've just worked through your list but let's go for compassionate.
1: <laughs> yeah. I think the compassionate is something that I would, would like to believe was sort of intrinsic to my teacher personality but it's certainly something that I've come to value even more being in this profession for a few years and also reflecting on how my work in theatre really encouraged people to listen to one another. You know, I think we take these processes so for granted that we're able just to sit and listen to a question and contemplate and give an answer in appropriate time, be patient, look around, wait for someone to finish before you, you know, you say what you want to say. We think it's intuitive but it's almost like we're relearning that process in a languages classroom because everyone is pretty much on the same level. You're all reduced to like those simple process of turning and actually looking at a person, seeing what they're doing, how they're moving their mouth, how that what they're indicating. Uh, It's a lot to take in plus the actual learning of new language. So the more that you are uh, lenient and, of course you want to challenge everyone's thinking but the more that you are understanding of the fact that the, the the series of processes inherent within that are can be very overwhelming for any one of us let alone those with SEN I think the more you begin to enter into like that, that that psychological degree of understanding about what it's like to be a young person navigating that environment and actually, there was a quote when I was looking back through some research from when I did my MPQ and lead teaching. And it was um, a point that Rathman and uh, Richter et al. were making about the perceived class environment and the role of the learning environment in classrooms. They were essentially saying that pupils need to feel that they're not being overly scrutinized. The actual process of getting language down on the paper or even trusting oneself to have a go orally uh, is extremely difficult. It's inherently challenging. And without that culture of encouragement, fun and play, uh, that that, that element of curiosity, you're not, I don't think, going to get to that level of collaboration and compassion that I think is inherent within our subject. And I don't think it, I think it sort of impedes how Confident learners feel to interact with one another. They're too focused on being uh feeling sort of inhibited, as opposed to actually just enjoying the process of, as I said before, making mistakes, listening to one another, actually really being playful and creative. So the more that we can encourage that through our inherent manner as teachers and demonstrate that that's a you know a key part of our learning environment, the less frequently I think you come up against those inhibitions.
0: Well, thank you, Lucy. That's been really, really interesting. And, and like throughout everything you've been saying, I've then ended up picking up on every other word that you said that began with a C, like confidence and connection and communication. So can yeah. you just repeat the the main, I think it was six that you you had at the very beginning. What were those words? So contextual, comprehensible, cultural
1: slash contemporary, um, collaborative cooperative
0: and constructive and compassionate I think that's such a great way to round off everything that you've you've said there but before we kind of round off the conversation head into the uh the CPD library round I've got a couple of things the Mm -hmm. first thing is have you ever written that all up or presented it or done something with it because I just found it so fascinating there was so much there I wondered if it's something that's that's part of a body of work you've you've done before or so it's really interesting that you
1: said that because I find I'm currently at a bit of a crossroads in my um, in my career development. I'm actually uh, going to be leaving the classroom in December to uh, actually move more into this kind of work, hoping to document it more as formal research or actually use these principles to work with other institutions to help them along. I've presented versions of this, though maybe not as articulately through um, conferences so such as Uh, the conference at Language, Language World that takes place every March through Association for Language Learning. And I've had the great fortune of being able to deliver some PGCE training sessions to a couple of groups of languages students as well. I definitely feel more confident with presenting the research and the way in which I've formulated it now because I've done that practice and just put myself out there, but I am definitely hoping to document it more formally.
0: Amazing. I'm glad I asked that. I'm glad I asked mm. that. So we got to hear hear that because there was just there was so much in what you were talking about. And it's very clear to me that there's way more beyond what we had time to say that you that you have with with this. So it just sounded really interesting. And I was hoping, well, essentially for the answer that you gave that, yes, it's out there. And yes, it's going to be more out there, I think. <laughs> Thank you. No, I appreciate that. And I'm looking forward to being able to
1: draw more connections with teachers at any stage of their professional development to really you know as I said it's not just about empowering the students it's really about giving teachers as much of a voice to help them stay in this profession longer or constantly you know continually develop in the way that really speaks true to them.
0: Absolutely so if someone does want to get in touch with you because they're interested in what you've been talking about or they want to have a have a chat what are kind of the best ways for them to do that? So uh,
1: best way at the moment is through Twitter or X. Uh, my Twitter, my Twitter handle is l dreznine d r e z n i n, and that is the uh, most be- beneficial way. I, you can also find me on LinkedIn, uh, and I will be starting a couple of other social media channels, maybe even a website in the new year to um, hopefully consolidate a lot of what I've been talking about more formally in kind of longer form, so that teachers have more of a kind of resource portal to go to should they wish
0: perfect i will make sure i link to your twitter x handle i hate this every every yeah. time we talk about twitter we say twitter all oh, no x because nobody <laughs> wants to call it x do we let's no. face it but i'll link to that that platform i'll link the handle in the notes for this show so people can can find you brilliant so before we move on to the cpd library is there anything you wanted to say before we move on uh i, I generally don't
1: think so um i think if there was any just a a statement to like kind of consolidate a lot of what I said it's that it's about finding what works for you to help all teachers feel motivated in the classroom but to also feel like they're very connected to their learning environment in as personable way as possible because all learners will benefit from that that value and that connection
0: lovely way to wrap up everything that you've just said Sign up to receive the From Page to Practice weekly newsletter to read tips and advice from my guests, as well as information on upcoming episodes. Find the link in the show notes for this episode. So we're moving on now into the CPD library round, which I know you've had a look at because we spoke about it briefly before I pressed the Mm. all important record button. So um, I know you know more or less what we're doing. I'm going to give a a selection of categories and I'd like to hear, uh, it could be a book, it could be an article, it's evolved now to be a person or a podcast or anything that for you goes with this particular category. So are you okay to get started? Yes, of course. So, first got you into evidence-informed practice? So, there was
1: a series of sources that I did have in my training year, but I think in doing my MPQ and lead teaching a couple of years ago, I genuinely did find um, the article by Rathman, Herc, Herlman and Richter from 2018 about the class climate and the role of learning environment in classrooms is really fascinating. So that was 2018, and the full title is Perceived Class Climate and School Age Children's Life Satisfaction The Role of the Learning Environment in Classrooms.
0: And the next one then is resonated with you the most. The,
1: this is a bit of a left field uh, choice, but there is a book by one of my favourite theatre directors called Declan Donnellan, and he wrote a book uh, some years ago called The Actor and the Target. And I just remember reading that in my degree and then revisiting it uh, a couple of years ago as a teacher, very, um, yeah, very much resonated with what I believed should be the way in which languages teachers or all teachers kind of interpret their curriculum and how they then deliver it to their audience, which is being, you know, this in this particular context of being students.
0: Love it when something comes up that's not from an education background because then you know that most people listening are going to be getting something from it instantly because they've yeah. definitely not heard of it. So no, I love it. Um, challenged your views? The uh, book, "The Behavior Guru" by Tom
1: Bennett. Uh, behavior management was not something I was co- super confident with starting as a teacher, but it it challenged my views with how hard line one should go with behaviour, what our responsibility is with teaching those social norms and also there were elements of it that married up well with what I've spoken about today.
0: Okay and had the biggest impact on your practice? So the uh, Rod Ellis uh, academic who I cited before
1: he's I mean he's extremely prolific in this idea of language acquisition and linguistics but his exploration and revisiting of learner errors and error correction um particularly in his larger volume study of second language acquisition i think is not just pertinent to languages teachers but i think is essential for all teachers to understand
0: the next one is should be required reading for an early career teacher or a trainee teacher so uh, I did. I did decide to go languages specific on
1: this, but um, mm-hmm. Krashen's, uh 1994 input hypothesis uh, is all about how teachers should be brave enough to scrutinise language and understand whether it's how challenging it is or how accessible it is, and that also encourages them to explore a wide variety of texts, so not just those that are prescribed in the textbook, but actually how do we use text from lots of different sources to get students to discover new language to be curious about our subject and also to actually challenge them in applying their linguistic knowledge to real life the real life world to the authentic parameter
0: nice and then next one is inspired you so I've gone with a, a theater uh one for this as well um
1: Stanislavski is the sort of founder and guru of the um of of naturalism and using method acting. Uh, and his if, if we if you type in the Stanislavski system into Google, you'll get a condensed version of what he's all about. But again, that was actually understanding how can we interpret text in different ways and, and communicate it differently to our audience using body language, using voice. And um, that has always been a source of inspiration for me uh, as a teacher.
0: So i have got three more left. Uh, the next one is your most recent. So the most recent was the Oracy
1: article, which I cited in the um, issue 19 of the Impact Magazine for Chartered College of Teaching. If you're not already a member, I do really recommend it. But um, I've always found their magazines absolutely fantastic. And their article on Oracy, which is um, by Angela Schofield, is fantastic, as well as the... Um, the Thinking Out Loud in the Classroom by Hannah Beach, which, again, explores that
0: concept of oracy. Great. And are those both in the most recent edition? Yes, so it's the autumn 2023 edition of Impact. Perfect. That's At the time of recording, that's come out fairly recently, I think, hasn't it? Yes. That one? Yeah, it was about a week and a half ago, I think. Great. Uh, two more left. Uh, the next thing on your to-be-read pile. Oof. Uh, so um, I am really
1: interested in the idea of um, social justice and uh, the idea and actually how high quality classroom discussion can can be promoted through that so there's a list of required reading from education endowment Foundation that I intend to get through uh, but also a um, by Alexander from 2017 on the the merits of a high quality classroom discussion I think he also wrote another volume which is, Creating a, all about creating a culture where people know their contributions matter from 2018, but that's sort of that's the like line of inquiry I'm most interested in at the moment.
0: Great. And the final one then, which people have taken in slightly different routes, depending on who I've spoken to, is doesn't exist, but should. So maybe something that you're really interested in reading and haven't found one book on it, or you found lots of bits and pieces here, there and everywhere, you'd like someone to bring it together, or you'd have liked it to exist when you started teaching and and it didn't, or I've even had someone full on pitch me a book as if I were a publisher, so take it however you wish, doesn't exist, but should
1: will not surprise listeners to know that again I've gone down the sort of theater route, but if there was if there were a book that married up what we learn from watching live theater or even interacting with the arts in any way at like going to see a film, a bit of dance, live concert gig, and how we use day-to-day culture to help us become more confident in our teacher identity and actually how can we use those real world examples more as like pragmatically in our classroom i think teachers are can be a little bit hesitant to bring in their own interests into the classroom but we're all interacting with something artistic and creative in some manner and i believe there's a lot of inspiration to be drawn from there or anything that teachers might find they have a particular passion for so yeah a book just basically saying how do we become confident in doing that how do we use that as a bit of you know a kind of act of rebellion maybe to uh, keep us within the system and how do we keep feeling autonomous, motivated and empowered?
0: Nice. So thank you, Lucy. I think today one thing you've demonstrated is is how you can bring in two different contexts and bring them together with your two different subject backgrounds and the, the way you've managed to to bring those together, um, for sure. So the benefit of, of us speaking to people from other backgrounds and contexts to our own is, is really clear from that. And the books that you've cited to... to give to people that could take away to find something different to their usual is really important too so i really appreciate you coming on and um well thank you very much that's brilliant no i've really enjoyed it it's been a pleasure are you interested in evidence-informed practice do you have a favorite edu book have an idea of what great cpd is and should be or to just generally have a chat about education please sign up to join me for a conversation I rely on volunteers from all contexts and levels of experience. Visit learninglinguistscouk forward slash page practice podcast for the sign up form. I really enjoyed my chat with Lucy today. She clearly has so much knowledge of the area and is very passionate about what she does. Please do get in touch with her if you want to hear more. I'd like to get some more chats booked in and the difficulty is getting people to believe they have something to say that's of value so if you know someone who will be good at this please do encourage them to sign up to take part. You've been listening to From Page to Practice. Don't forget to join in the conversation using hashtag page practice podcast. Thanks go to Kevin McLeod of incomtech.com. For use of the tracks Cheery Monday and Fuzzball Parade which are licensed under Creative Commons.